Hey everybody, Brad Stevens here, founder and CEO of Outsource Access. We help companies redefine how they scale with offshore affordable staff from the Philippines. Congrats to all fellow winners of the 2023 Real Leaders Impact Awards. We are proud to be among you. About 10 years ago, I woke up to a major growth problem in my last business. Cash was tight, staff was overwhelmed, and tasks were not getting done. Then I discovered the world of offshore virtual staff in the Philippines where English is their second language, so there is no communication or culture gap. I realized outsourcing wasn't just call centers, it was access to college-educated Filipinos to support sales, marketing, operations, customer service, bookkeeping, personal tasks, and more. And in fact, the first woman I hired in the Philippines at 23 is now an award-winning COO of our entire company. It inspired me to launch Outsource Access. One client and YPO member, Ali Jamal, shared their offshore virtual staff Edison automated processes and saved them over 50,000 per year in the first few weeks. It's about finally getting things done and staff focusing on higher value activities. We've grown by over 2,000% in just three and a half years and will double next year. To receive a complimentary outsourcing playbook customized for your industry and to connect with one of our team here at Outsource Access, just visit RedefineScale.com. That's RedefineScale.com or text the word SCALE to 770-954-8440. Two months after hiring my first staff, she sent me a picture of shoes she bought for low-income children because of the opportunity. And now we support thousands of families and the environment with United Nations SDG projects. I'm proud we've grown with impact. To learn more, visit RedefineScale.com. Boom, what up? Hello, bonjour, and hola, real leaders. This is Kevin Edwards, your host here, and I am so excited. You're tuning in to one of our amazing experiences. What you're about to hear is going to be fresh, real, and loaded with inspiration, guaranteed to support your impact journey. So sit back, enjoy the listen, folks share a review afterward, and always keep it real. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. And joining us today, folks, is the co-founder and CEO of Champ Titles. Please welcome Mr. Shane Bigelow. Shane, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Of course. So, Shane, uh, you know, most of the entrepreneurs that come onto the show, the CEOs, you know, we get this version of them about where they are now. But I think what's really helpful for our audience to understand is kind of the backstory into that leader, into that entrepreneur why they got into this space and how this story began. So could you bring our audience into the origin story uh, of your career and how uh, you got to uh, co-founding Chantiles? Sure, yeah. So uh, I started a company uh, about 24, 25 years ago now uh, that happened to be in the automotive lending space. And when you have to deal with automotive loans, you get familiar with the idea of titles because the liens for the loans go on titles. And I recognized, you know, 25 years ago, sort of the dilemma that was facing the titling world, which was it's, it's very paper oriented process. Um, fast forward a little bit, I wound up, uh, you know, selling the company, going to some other companies, selling one of those uh, to a larger company. And then ultimately finding my way into the investment arm of a technology, large technology entity called Cisco, 
And that got me recruited away to Wall Street. And while I was on Wall Street, we were trying to tackle some problems with um, how to deploy money in an environmentally sensitive, socially conscious and um, governance oriented type of way around the world. And one thing we realized was that um, a lot of assets couldn't be borrowed against because you couldn't show the provenance of the asset. You shouldn't, couldn't show the ownership. And that troubled me because people all over the world couldn't extract value from things they owned because they couldn't prove that they actually owned it. Fast forward a little bit longer, um, met my co-founder and we realized that we both had a knowledge of the auto titling space and felt that we could fix the problems in that space as well as help government get better for their constituents in that space by digitizing a lot of what was done in paper form. And if we did that all right, the knock-on effect would be that we might actually be able to go back and help the rest of the world with how to show the provenance and ownership of assets. And that would allow them to extract a lot of value out of those assets. And we'd be helping a lot of people along the way. It's impressive. And how our audience can understand, like, you know, what do you mean by people around the world who don't have a title on property? Like, what, what kind of people are you talking about? Is there an example that you can give? Yeah, so... Um... One example, I was uh, in Africa and Zambia, actually, and we were looking at trying to lend money on cows. Um, there was a, a great company that people might know called Land of Lakes. Uh, they're a butter company, um, probably oversimplifying their business, but to me, they're a butter company. And they had this wonderful program where they'd lend $1,000 to women to buy a cow. And I always thought, wow, this is great. What a charitable effort on their part. They took part of their profits to fund this. And the reason they lent it to women uh, was really compelling. Um, first, if it, you know, as the sort of the joke would go, if you lent the money to a man, uh, you'd wind up having stake in a week or two. You lent it to a woman, she attached a plow to the back of the cow. Uh, she used the manure to fertilize the field. She milked the cow, sold the milk, bought some other cows, created a herd, ultimately facilitated enough wealth out of that to develop a you know, micro farming system. And maybe one day, a few years later, she'd keep a stake when she sold a cow. And the value of that $1,000 went a lot further for that woman. So we were looking at it and saying, well, how could we use that same $1,000 to perhaps buy down the interest rate on a loan to make the interest rate super compelling, very cheap, very low, and allow that woman to buy 10 cows, right? Why have her wait so many years or decades to be able to accrue enough wealth to be able to do this independent of the debt? Why not allow the business that she's built to pay the debt and grow a business like we grow it in the United States. And we thought, well, this would be great. The problem was we couldn't figure out who owned the cows. There wasn't a good way to track the titling or the provenance of that asset. And so no bank would lend against it. And we couldn't take the debt and sell it to a bunch of other investors because they couldn't believe what the collateral was behind it. 
And that's a problem. It's a problem in a lot of the developing parts of the world where they have assets, whether it be cattle or farm equipment or art or gold or other movable assets that simply can't show the provenance or track record of ownership of those assets. And as a result, you can't extract any value against it. You can't insure it. You can't do a lot of the things we take for granted in the developing world. It's a fascinating story because, you know, here I like to say you know, in America, we're just kind of in our bubble. We don't really understand, um, you know, what it's like on, in, you know, rural parts and developing um, areas around the world. Um, and this is a, a massive problem all the way from, you know, titles like you just mentioned, lending to undocumented immigrants to banking and, you know, getting your identity. Um, so help me understand like where Champ Titles comes in and all of this. Uh, to digitize, to help the, the accessibility of these titles. If that was kind of that eureka moment, is, how is the company structured and what's the, what's the business model that you're uh, creating now? Well, you know, really where we're focused is on helping government and the entities that have to deal with government move their titles more efficiently. So in the United States, the primary form of titles that occurs uh, on movable assets is on vehicles. So cars, boats, planes, ATVs, that sort of thing. And um, what we do is we, on one side of our business, sell systems to government to replace their aging and inefficient current title and registration systems. Most of those systems are on-premise, non-cloud-based, heavy keystroke type of systems that don't take advantage of the cloud, don't have a SaaS pricing model attached to them. So government wildly overpays for these services from other vendors. And as government gets more familiar and uh, comfortable with SaaS models, uh, we replace what they previously had with a model that allows them to have a much more cost-efficient and up-to-date uh, version of title and registration for their constituents. The other side of the business is for us to link into systems around the country that governments have in order to help enterprises like car dealers and insurance carriers and fleet operators to more efficiently move their titles around. They have a lot of cars that they have to encounter or buy or own or sell. And every time they do that, they need to move a, uh, a title. And that's a cumbersome paper-based process that we've largely digitized around the country. It, and again, it's amazing. And, and I like your approach um, to kind of this growth strategy um, and, and where you really see the need. Now let's go into that a little bit more like taking that leap first into this entrepreneurial path what were some of those first hurdles that you wanted to get over in order to take that leap to start this organization with your co-founder? Um, tell us a little bit about the, the uh, beginnings uh, of, of Chantels. Well, you know, I, I think um, yeah, I started one company when I was 21 or something, and this one when I was uh, 41 or something like that. and um, you know, there's a difference in those 20 years, right? When I was 21, my diet consisted of craft dinner and ramen. So if I completely screwed it up, I was reduced to a, a diet of just ramen. Um, you know, I wasn't going to give up a whole lot by 
screwing it up then. Um, and I wouldn't say I did particularly well either. Maybe the pressure wasn't right. Maybe it's better when you're 41 and you've got a wife and three kids and the you know house and other things that generally associate with that period of life. And um, you know, I don't have the option of failing now. Um, and so uh, you know, the hurdle is higher in terms of what you have to do to feel successful because you know, frankly, I had a great career that. I think most people would um, probably not leave. Uh, but the challenge of uh, starting a new company and taking advantage of what my business partner and I saw is this massive wind at the back of changes in the titling world gave us the opportunity to build technology that, you know, quite frankly, would would make a good company in terms of profit and return to shareholder value while at the same time doing something good for the world, right? If we sped these systems up for government first in the United States and then the rest of the world, we would make government more efficient and not have to be inside of government to do it, right? We, we didn't have to be a politician or appointed to a position we could help government by supplying a better technology that would help their constituents. And at the same time, we'd help commerce move faster in the United States, which is how we keep our lead as a country by having larger GDPs because we're more productive and move things faster. If we could do that here and then ultimately take it overseas, which we haven't done yet, uh, but if we do, uh, I think that shows that we could really help the world. And that seems to be like the central argument uh, in in the impact space that we're in is like you know the with all the problems in the world business t tends to be the ones who can solve them faster and um can can really scale uh bring the, i guess the solutions to scale versus maybe a, a government organization how have governmental organizations been with you have they been receptive um to uh, you know the software have they been slow to adopt it what's your experience been working with um, you know these public agencies? Well, I, I think most of the success in any young company is not a function of the idea or um, you know the, the necessarily the ingenuity. It, it's a it's a function of the timing and the cohesive drive of the team. So Timing's probably most of that, right? So there's lots of great teams all around the world. There's lots of great ideas all around the world. But if you have the timing wrong, it really doesn't matter. Um, if you have the timing right, you can have suboptimal ideas and suboptimal teams and still be successful. So timing probably matters quite a bit more. Um, you know, we've had um, a lot of success with government because the timing of their willingness to move from these old school systems to you know, a SaaS offering is, is right, right? They have, as consumers, as individuals, they've consumed SaaS for a while, right? Whether it was, you know, a Netflix style model or um, maybe they're hosting a website for a hobby somewhere, um, yeah, however they've consumed SaaS, they've gotten used to it over the last you know decade or so of the cloud really becoming pervasive in all parts of what we do. Well, if you're doing that personally, eventually when you show up to work, even in 
places that are generally a little slower moving for technological innovation like government, eventually you go to government and you're like, or your job, and you say, well, we should do that here. And we're hitting that stride at the same time that we're bringing our product to market. So the timing's good. And you, you talk a lot about this you know, cohesive unit, this cohesive, I think you said drive of the team. In your role as you know, at the helm, like what's been working for you in order to create that cohesion uh, to drive the team forward? I think you have to have a common goal in mind. Um, you, you've got to. Yeah, ha we have a we have a we have eight sort of uh, core principles, um, and one of them probably defines the culture better than the other seven. Uh, not that the other seven aren't important, but maybe one to help defines the culture a little bit better. And it's treat no as a stumbling block on the way to yes. So the, it was something I picked up from my time at, at Cisco. Um, I remember John Chambers, uh, when he was CEO, walking into a room I was in with a, a number of salespeople and some finance people and investment people and what have you. And he said, you know what I love about all of you is that customers continue to tell us no, and you find a way to get to yes. And, you know, that kind of culture is hard to create. So my hope was to have a team that when we started the company, that was all part of our DNA and the way that we behaved. And hopefully people that joined the team would take that on as well. And I think we've been pretty successful in finding uh, a, a large group of people now that all have that same mindset of, yeah, we've invented something that solves a big problem. And a lot of people aren't used to it. You know, digitizing titles is something that people that are in titling haven't always heard of because they're so used to the paper world. So you're going to hear no a lot. Don't worry about that. Figure out how to get to yes. And, and that's what keeps the team cohesive is the shared joy of that moment when someone who was a no becomes a yes. Shane, it seems like you're pretty hands-on with the team and, and certainly, uh, you know, keeping someone motivated to get that yes um, and, and stay within the company. Like, Throughout the growth of your organization, like how would you just one like just define your role as a CEO and how has it evolved in your company's history? I think I'm generally just useless overhead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think if you have a good team, that's what you become. Uh, and I hope um, maybe on some days I can be a little bit more than that. Um, you know, I, we were lucky enough to have a really great team that knows how to lead and run their parts of the organization exceptionally well. And um, my job is to make sure that the the strategy is being tended to correctly, um, that the team stays cohesive, that we're persistently driving to get to shareholder value. Uh, that we feel is appropriate and it, that we're not forgetting that our broader mission as a company is to do something great for the world. Like I truly believe that God gives everybody skills uh, that, that they're tasked with figuring out how to use during their life. And the last thing I want to do is, you know, 
go meet St. Peter and realize I didn't do something that I should have done with something I was given. So I try to pull that out of everybody so that they're using their skills as best as they can. I'm not sure I'm successful at that even 5% of the time. Um, but thankfully, I've got a team that figures out how to do most of it on their own. And, and where does that come from? Is that mostly intuition? Is that just uh, learning and listening, being receptive of what employees are saying? Where does this knack for understanding what to put people in the right seat come from? I, uh, I think the the best question someone can ask another human is how can I be helpful? You learn a lot when you ask that question. And if you truly mean it, when you ask it, you're, you're trying to get to the root of where you can be helpful to another person. So I try again, not always successfully, but to bring that, that question into a lot of what we do on a daily basis, you know, where can I be more helpful to you? Um, and and hopefully that uh, that that creates a culture of re reliance and confidence in one another that you're really here to help the team and the team is here to help the customers and the customers here to do something right for their constituents and if we do that right then the whole circle works and the world benefits. It seems like your team is you know very comfortable with adversity and you know facing a no and you know persevering over this um you know thinking about some struggles and challenges in, in your career you know what have been some of the biggest learning lessons for you throughout your career well um you know you you're given opportunities and if you're not present uh, when those opportunities are provided, uh, either mentally or physically present, uh, you're going to miss them. And, you know, what I observe a lot, especially when we um, interview people, it's pretty easy to tell the folks that are meant to be in a younger company and the folks that are meant to be in uh, maybe a more established or older company. The people that are meant to be in a younger company never want to miss an opportunity. They'll do anything they can to not miss an opportunity. They'll show up early. They'll leave late. They'll be on phone calls at random hours. They'll dig into research on their own. They'll find ideas. They'll submit them. They'll put themselves out there to say, I think this is a better way to do it, even if they'll face you know, a, a harsh critique because they believe so much that their that their responsibility is to is to behave that way to to really get after something and take advantage of the opportunity that's presented to them when you find someone that is unwilling to do that they're probably not meant for a younger company and and i think that um that's a that's a it's a big part of the way we try to craft our team is to figure out who has that uh inside of them and who looks at um, adversity as an opportunity as opposed to a problem. Yeah, absolutely. It, it seems to be that, you know, in the, in the younger stage companies, you know, it's, it's very time demanding. Um, and that can, as we know, lead into, you know, your personal life as well and then take away 
from those those moments that you may want to be there for how have you been able to balance if you have been able to balance uh you know your personal and professional life i i don't i don't know uh, if I'm good at it or not, you'd, you'd have to ask my wife and my three sons and maybe my dog. Um, I, I do know that a, a principle that my business partner shared with me once um, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. And that's that, you know, he asked a number of friends. Uh, we were all kind of running different companies at the time or divisions of companies or what have you. He said, you know, how many of you bring your A game to work? Pretty much everybody raises their hand. How many of you bring your A game home? Right. And if you ask yourself that question and you're not bringing it home, well, why? What makes you think you get to take that time off? And uh, you probably die a good bit younger by putting that level of stress on yourself. Um uh, but the last 10 years were going to suck anyway. So you might as well uh, put all you have into the breath you have today and worry about tomorrow some other day. And so I I think that that mentality is the right mentality. Whether or not you achieve it on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm sure I am no better at it than any other parent. But um, I, I try. So... I don't know if I have a great answer for how to achieve balance other than bring your A game to work and bring it home too. Um, well, you know, there's no balance, I guess, right? I mean, you can only be yourself. Um, it's almost a misleading question sometimes because, you know, what is balance? Do you need to be balanced? Do you think that balance is good? Um, you know, does that take away from you and, and your goal and your vision? I mean, I, I guess in terms of your motive, Shane, like what, what drives you? What is your vision? What is your dream? Um, what, what gets you out of bed each morning? I, you know, I, I'm not sure I've ever understood the, the concept of balance to your point. I, I, I think I understand the concept of example. Um, you know, balance implies that things are equally weighted, right? So I, I, I'm not sure that always makes sense, right? I'm not sure that's always the best example. Um, maybe family and God and church should be far more weighted than work, right? I, maybe sometimes it has to go the other way in order to show the right example. I, I'm not sure about that, but I can tell you why I left what I used to do, which again, most people probably wouldn't have left. Um, you know, I was on a I think, very solid career path that um, had a lot of comfort and um, future in front of it with a great group of people. Uh, so by most standards, I think people would sort of stay at that. But my view was that it was losing the challenge. The challenge wasn't there anymore. And you know, I have three boys, as I mentioned. I think my job as a parent is to exemplify what I want them to be and hope that they mimic the good parts of what I exemplify and forget about the bad. And I wanted them to see that you should take on a challenge at all times and maximize the gifts that are given to you, or at least try to. And the challenge of starting a new company and building it is far greater than the challenge of, you know, once you've achieved a certain level, 
just sort of waiting to see if the next person in front of you quits, dies, or gets fired, right? And you can go pretty high in, in any organization just waiting for someone in front of you to quit, die, or get fired. But that's not exactly um, a challenge. It's a, it's a war of attrition. So the war of attrition is some level of challenge, but it's not necessarily a challenge that I wanted them to feel like they should mimic. And the one I wanted them to mimic was if you really want to get after something, then get after it and, and, you know, put your all into it. And I wanted them to see me go do that. So hopefully that's what they see. Well, certainly that's what I've been able to take away from this is you've, you've been able to act upon, I don't know if you'd call it, would you call it a calling? Would you call it um, something that urged you to to leave and, and go pursue something? Is that a calling? I mean, how, how do you kind of see this um, this change? I, I don't know if it's a calling. I don't know if I put a title to it or anything like that. I, I think it's it's just a, it's a way to try to leverage what God gave me and hope that I can show a great example. And I thought that through, uh, and I still think that through trying to accomplish bigger and bigger challenges, that's a great example or a better example to show my kids. And it's also considerably more fulfilling, right? On a totally selfish level, the fulfillment I get from challenging myself is far greater than the fulfillment you might get by you know, being well-paid or, or what have you for something that's not terribly challenging, right? It's, it's a monetarily rewarding, but maybe not emotionally fulfilling or mentally fulfilling. And so you, you become emptier as a person when that's, or at least I would, if that's all I'm pursuing. If I'm pursuing something that is holistically fulfilling because I'm giving back to the world at the same time that I'm doing something that's monetarily rewarding at the same time that I'm challenging the skills I was given to try to see if I can maximize the benefit of those. Hopefully that's a better example for my kids. Well, I think it's also a great example for the employees, if I'm not mistaken, like, have you found the impact aspect of your organization to be um, a great, I guess, values aligner for new recruitments that are coming in, uh, for people who find fulfillment in their own work. Have you found the impact portion of your your business to to uh, unlock that? Yeah, I mean, I you know, occasionally we'll compete for business that will ask for a description of what we're doing uh, that you know is helpful to the environment or society or what have you, and. You know, sometimes that can be tough to define. In our case, it's not super hard. Um, we get rid of paper. There are millions upon millions of pieces of paper. So thousands upon thousands upon thousands. I'm not quite sure if we've crossed into the millions yet, but probably not of trees that are not taken away because we're not you know, using the paper of, of chemicals that aren't used in the paper creation process that aren't, you know, needing to be disposed of or recycled or whatever. 
um, energy that's not used. Um, and if you look at the core nitty gritty of some of what we're doing, you know, take our insurance customers. When we turn a title faster, that car that was in a total loss, like a hurricane or an accident or something, prior to us, it was sitting in a salvage yard, leaking oil and nasty things into the ground for 50 or 60 days. And now, and just waiting on the title. And now if we turn the title in a few days, that vehicle can go to a recycler and be fully recycled months in advance of what it was before. And that helps the world, right? That helps stop the pollution, that helps um, solve some of these issues. And you know, there's no vendor that was responsible for these issues. Uh, there are these you know, rules that people are trying to comply with, with you have to buy a car, you have to transfer a car, you have to fill out paperwork, you've got to send the paperwork, you've got to you know, get the paperwork approved. And all of these people and folks in that ecosystem have a job and they're doing their job as well as they can. But if they could do it digitally, then we eliminate a lot of the waste. We drive back value on the environment front. And I think as people interview with us, what they see is this is real. Right. I'm I if I make this code better, if I sell more of this product, if I build a more efficient product on the product development team, I will have directly contributed to something in the world that I can calculate how, how much it's helped. And I, I do find that generationally th this sort of like 20-year window, it's generally defines a generation. This 20-year window, whether it's 10 on the prior side and maybe the 10 going forward, seems to be much more inclined to want to feel that the contribution is real. And we happen to be able to provide that. Um, that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because we think it's the right thing to do. But again, just like the uh, an entrepreneurial idea, the timing is right. So it helps us get fantastic team members to sign on because unlike working somewhere where you can't calculate your contribution, you, you, you actually can here. Uh, and, you know, everyone's experienced some pain in some way, shape or form with a title, whether it's, you know, selling your car, uh, trying to dig through it, where, where, where's that paper title, you know, where, <laughs> where is it, uh, you know, and getting it back from the DMV and, you know, making sure that it's in the right name and transferring that over. It's like, it's just a pain in the butt. Um, you know, in terms of your, like your growth strategy and for people like listening to this right now and being like, you know, how, how can I help? How can I help this organization? You know, because this would be such a great thing um, for everyone. It would just make things seamless. It would make the world a better place. That would be much more organized and, um, you know, just have a great impact. What is the growth strategy right now and, and how can people help? Uh, the easiest way is challenge your government, uh, your state government, uh, and your specifically your motor vehicle departments to supply you with better technology, right? Supply your car dealers, your lenders, your insurance carriers with easier ways to communicate with that DMV. Challenge them to get you out of line and let you do things online. Um, you know, that, that 
modernization inside of the DMVs needs to continue to happen because it's one of the last places where people truly have a non-digital experience. And I, I think if you if you if, if for some reason you wake up and you want to help a titling company from Ohio, which you know I'm not sure how many people wake up to do that, but it, if you do, uh, you know, challenge your state government and say, wait a minute, have you contemplated that there's a way to do this digitally? How much taxpayer money is my DMV spending every year on maintaining a system that could literally cost our state zero? Those fees and charges to, to pay us get passed through the ecosystem, but there's no point at which those fees and charges are greater than what the state is already paying. So you as a citizen of your state are paying on a pro rata basis, considerably more to support an antiquated system than you are to process your title once every five or 10 years, whenever you sell a car. So you have to ask yourself, why am I supporting that system in my state? Why are we not asking our state to think more creatively about where those budget dollars go and look for solutions that are commensurate with today's technology, as opposed to the technology from 20 years ago, which is what is still in place. Yeah, and speaking of those, I guess, adjacent industries, it reminds me of like health records and just things that need to be organized on a longitudinal platform that, you know, you go to one medical care physician, they'll have all your records right there for you to get the actual support and help that you need. You know, I'm curious, I'm really like interested in kind of how you were uh, breaking down the next 20 years, like you just said, the next 20 years, this generational opportunity. Help me understand, like, what is the vision in 20 years for, for Chantel? The mission of the company is to become the world's asset registry for movable assets. So we certainly want to continue to get really good at being able to do that in North America for vehicles, right? And I think that there are lots of governments state governments, provincial governments, what have you um, in North America that could benefit from having an enhanced system that costs the government zero, that gives the people a more efficient process, that moves it all online, has a lot of the waste and environmental damage taken out of it, all at a reduced cost. I think there's lots of places that are gonna continue to need that. And I think that the adoption and the demand for that will continue to grow. Because people will realize, if I really want to make a difference, I should ask my government to spend my money better. Um, so I, you know, that'll be a big source of growth for us over the next couple of decades. But I also think this translates into the rest of the world, right? There are countries that have no way to keep track for their people of the assets that they own. So there's you know, theft and graft and greed that drive bad behaviors, you know, all around these countries because they don't have a system of record that allows the provenance of an asset or the ownership of an asset to be correctly declared. And as soon as you can declare that, you can put the power back into the owner as opposed to whoever has, you know, the most physical power, right? It, you know, around the world, there are many cases where, um, unfortunately, women are subjected to the uh, 
overpowering of a male dominated system. Well, why? The women, as I pointed out with the cow example, in many cases contribute so much more than men. Now that's not necessarily gender-based, but what it is, is it's, it's a, something that has occurred in the world that is often a function of women not being empowered to own assets. So if you can put that power back in the woman's name, we solve some of that inequality. And that inequality can happen around the world for race, for religion, for gender. It's, it's not confined to this one example, but asset ownership is what allows people to extract value from what they've created and use that value to expand their either their economic footprint or their social welfare footprint or their charitable footprint, right? Just because you make the wealth doesn't mean you have to keep it. If we create a world where people can actually extract the value out of their assets, like we do in the United States with homes and cars and boats and planes and other things, we'll create a more equitable world. But you need a system to keep track of all that, that people can trust. And we believe we can supply that. So I think the next 20 years has lots of opportunities for us to give back in that way. Well, Shane, I uh, just want to appreciate you coming on the show today. I mean, there's certainly a huge opportunity here. Uh, crazy to think that we're in 2022. Everything is still print, disorganized, and a pain in the butt uh, to get accomplished. Um, so a solution like this is really exciting. Uh, and the impact that it can make uh, would be tremendous if we were to get to that point. With all this, let's bring this home, Shane. What is your definition of a real leader? Well, I, I, I think a, a, a real leader, um, you know, I think a real leader doesn't just live, they live for the story they're creating, right? They, the story is, it exemplifies who they are, it exemplifies what they stand for, and through that story, they set the example for others. And so a real leader lives for the story, not just to live. For Shane Bigelow, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, live for the story, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Shane. Thank you. Hey, Real Leaders, thanks again for listening to this amazing episode. And if you're someone like me who goes all the way to the end just to make sure I can extract as much information, education, and inspiration out of every single interview, might I suggest you check out our magazine. If you go online to realleaders.com today, you're going to get the first 30 days for free where you're going to be able to access all of our magazines courses, and live events from some of the top thought leaders around the world. All you have to do is go online to realleaders.com and click the subscribe button in the top right corner to get your free 30-day trial right now. Again, that's real-leaders.com. Thanks again for being a real leader and always keep it real.